If you average everything together, that's called the mean. And that's just mean of you to do that. Uh, that's not nice at all. That's kind of the definition. Right, exactly. Once more under the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another sort of semi kind of exciting episode of The Personal Wealth Coach starring Jake and Jeff McClure. Uh, I'm sorry I qualified the exciting part. I guess it comes from, you know, some people aren't as excited as we are about the fluctuations and spreadsheets and the changes in prices in different parts of the world. But, you know, for those of you that are, it's maybe more than semi-sorta kinda exciting. For those of you that aren't, it's probably not even sorta semi-kinda. So when you average it all together, that's what we're planning. Wait, uh, no, no, that's not. Hopefully it'll be better than that. <sighs> okay, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and we are hoping to talk to you about the economy, finance, maybe personal finance. You're right. This is the Personal Wealth Coach. And the Personal Wealth Coach is not only a weird radio program with a couple of guys who do bad puns. And are bald. It is also, and are bald and bearded. Yes. Uh, and the guy who said, and bald first, uh, has a black beard. And the guy who said, and bearded, has a gray beard. You haven't looked and, at my beard in a while. Well, it's got a, I'm looking at it right now. It's yeah. got little streaks of gray in it, but it isn't. It's still mostly black. It's I would just, call it a black beard. Just, yeah, yeah. You, 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 you could call it that if you wish. Just in comparison to your white beard, everything mm. else looks black. So that's it's fine. And uh, the guy with the white beard is Jeff, and the guy with the not very white beard is Jake. Yes. Yeah, and we have been doing this for a long time. This kind of conversation has been going on between the two of us my entire speaking lifetime because the guy with the white beard is my dad. People often think we're brothers. We're partners, um, but and, and maybe in a uh, philosophical, spiritual sense, we're brothers. Um, I would say eschatological, but that's all right. Oh, you would say uh -huh. words like that. Those have <laughs> anyway. more than one syllable. The, the personal wealth coach is also the name of a registered in, or an investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. It does portfolio management and gives investment advice that is registered with the Securities and Exchange, the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, which does not in any way imply that they approve or anything else. It just means if, if an investment advisory firm is has to be registered and in order to be, if it has over 100 million dollars under management it has to be registered with the sec and that's as far as it goes yeah yeah they don't say and, you're good they do occasionally say you're bad to people and that oh, kind of makes yeah. headlines right but, but you never hear that the sec endorses a company no we're not endorsed by the sec just because we that's kind of like saying i haven't gotten a ticket all year and that means that the police think i'm nice no it doesn't <laughs> say anything about what the police think <laughs> <laughs> well, the insurance company thinks I'm nice. Yeah, the insurance anyway. company likes me. Yeah. Uh, maybe they Anyways. like me more if they I got more tickets because they could charge me more. I don't know. Anyway, back to the disclosures. Um, See, just said yeah, just because we're registered to give investment advice, which is what we just said, the firm is registered to give investment advice. That doesn't mean that that's what this is. Investment advice is custom tailored to the person receiving it. 
which is really hard to do in a podcast radio environment. I mean, we could do it, but it would have to be like a direct broadcast. It would be like a narrow cast. So that's more like a phone. This is not a phone or a team. But we're not team. phonies either. And we're not phonies. So uh, we don't give uh, investment advice on the air. We give education on the air. We're trying to give you the tools to know when you need advice. Uh, hopefully that will be helpful. Say that 10 times fast. Uh, and the information that we receive or that we disseminate on this program. Oh, you thought I was going to give it, didn't you? You started to have a pained look on your face. No, 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 no. I'm waiting to hear you say it. Uh, come from sources that we deem to be reliable, though we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said or unsaid information, much less written or unwritten. There. I'm, I'm impressed. I you added it very well. I, it's, yeah, that's really cool. I, I didn't lower my volume and speak at double speed, though. I need to get working on that. And if you would like to, it's presuming today is June 4th, 2022. Uh, if you would like to fire us some questions via email, we'll uh, endeavor to address them on the air. And our email addresses are jake at tpwc.com and jeff at tpwc.com. That's Tango Papa Whiskey Charlie or the personal wealth coach. Um, our uh, chief questioner. Uh, Inquisitor. Inquisitor John uh, had a series of fantastic questions for us this week. Uh, and the first one that I'm going to answer isn't the first one he asked, but it fits in really nicely with this. As is tradition, he's taken a digital picture of his paper, Wall Street Journal, and then emailed it to me so that I may look at the digital analog version of the Wall Street Journal. And uh, his question that I'm going to hit here is on gold. Why is there a difference in gold prices for one tro troy ounce? So we can kind of look at it. We've, there's four prices listed in the Wall Street Journal. Um, and the spread is pretty far between them. Uh, the, the difference is it's like $102 between the lowest and the top. So there's four different prices on one troy ounce of gold. And there's $100 between one, the lowest price and the highest price. So why? They're listing, they're listing four places for gold prices, which is just a drop in the bucket for the number of places that have different gold prices. When it comes to like West Texas intermediate oil, crude oil, or Brent crude oil, those are two numbers that we hear quoted all the time because those are two really big markets for them. Brent is it's a, a British-based, a, a UK-based pricing system, but the Norwegians are involved in this too. So basically, a lot of the oil from the Middle East and Europe is priced in Brent because they have kind of one marketplace where they all get together and they bid on it. It's not completely one marketplace, but at least it's semi-organized and most of the buyers know most of the sellers. Okay, that's not the way it works with gold. There are thousands upon thousands of gold, I'm going to put air quotes around this, exchanges. Maybe more, maybe tens of thousands. Um, and that goes from the coin, the collectible coin seller in the mall to we buy gold uh, guys that stand on the, on the corner of the street spinning signs to 
uh, massive establishments with vaults that are as big as a warehouse. Uh, there are so many different places, and each seller tends to have their own price to sell by. It tends to fall within a range just because if your price is too high, they'll go to somewhere else. But if you're buying from somebody in India, you have to ship the gold. That's an additional cost. Just like our oil is less expensive, West Texas Intermediate is less expensive than Brent. Why? It's the, basically the same quality oil. Why is Brent more expensive than West Texas Intermediate? Because it, the Brent oil includes already shipped oil from a lot of places and more expensive drilling. So it costs more to drill in the North Sea than it costs to frack in, in Texas or to dig a hole in your backyard in Houston. That's, that's a little bit of hyperbole there. It's not quite that easy. But uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, actually, the market doesn't care where the oil comes from. That's true. It doesn't. But it's just how it tastes. United, if, if it's right. sweet, it's more expensive than not that's sweet. That's right. Sweet crude. But the fact that Brent oil is a little more sweet, it's cheaper to uh, refine into the lighter fuels that people use. It's immediately available in Europe where the big demand is. People are willing to pay a little more for that than they are for U.S. oil because it's not quite as sweet. And the other thing is it's kind of like um, you pay a little more for something if shipping, if you add the shipping costs in. And the demand right now, big time, is in Europe. And the oil in the United States costs money to get to Europe. So that's just the way it works out. Uh, we add shipping costs. When, when, when you look at the West Texas uh, Intermediate crude price in the United States, it's not the same. If you buy West Texas Intermediate crude in Europe, you're going to pay about the same as you pay for Brent, which is why there's two different reasons, two different numbers. If, if you really want to see about, about gold, for example, you're looking at gold around $1,850, $1,847 an ounce right now. You can buy a Credit Suisse one ounce fine gold uh, bar sealed in a tamper resistant container for about $2,000 an ounce. But that doesn't mean you're likely to want to do that. The, the price of gold, for instance, one of those numbers, uh, John, that you sent us uh, on gold uh, let's see, which one was it? The one for 2000, the Handy and Hartman fabricated. That's not just gold. Handy and Hartman fabricated bar. First off, it's they're coming 400 ounce bars. So it's 400 times that price brown that you're looking there. And secondly, those are historical bars that aren't made anymore. They were, they, in other words, if you have a bar that was, made, that was fabricated by Handy and Hartman uh, 20 years ago, the mean price for that is $2,040.96 in the Wall Street Journal there. Uh, Englehart Industrial. Englehart Industrial, you have to show up at a BASF facility that is buying and selling gold and physically transfer the gold at a BASF facility to get that $853 an ounce. So, 1853 Eight, $1,853. $1,853 an ounce. So, that's the point. If you if you want to buy gold or sell gold, the first off, there's this one of the things that's really important uh, is to recognize that if you go to buy gold, it will be a higher price than if you go to sell gold. Yes. And secondly, uh, the quantity that you're selling at a time will affect the price. And thirdly, I could go on and on and on. Yeah. It changes. 
moment to moment. Yeah. So the price of gold is not, as Jake said, it isn't a fixed thing someplace where there is a uh, New York gold exchange or whatever. Um, it swings around and there is a spread between buy and sell. And there's a lot goes into the price of gold that is most people don't understand. And they, what they see when they see the price of gold advertised in many cases is the price that a commercial gold dealer will sell gold to you for. You try to sell it back to the same dealer, and in many cases, the price goes down. And the other thing is, if you if your gold is other than a stamped bar in a sealed container, then there's some question, obviously, whether or not it's gold. Then you have, an, so, you have to have it assayed, which costs money. It, yeah, it's rough. And that's just life. This uh, is the gold. time when fine gold can be rough. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You got it. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, we have uh, another question from Inquisitor John, and he just knows how to ask questions that I like to answer. Uh, but I, this is a big enough question that it's available for lots of input from all sources. Um, his question, it's both... It, he's, he actually asked the question two times, and, and it's basically the same question. Shadow banks, bank question. Uh, what are lightly regulated shadow banks? And what was the warning that Jamie Dimon predicted last week? And in the Wall Street Journal article here, um, there's a little area in a headline that says, where is, here is where to look for the next Wall Street blow up. I love that. It's a great headline. Uh, and... One of the reasons is, uh, it says, the second reason is that there's a massive unknown and unknown amount of private debt issued by lightly regulated shadow banks. What's a shadow bank? Um, any, anything that holds money and loans money for someone else is a bank. I know that's weird. doesn't fall under banking regulations. The word shadow bank kind of started in the 1970s when referring to um, a series of limited partnerships in real estate, as well as other things. So let me give you some examples. What is a shadow bank? Um, if you make a loan to a friend who wants to buy a hamburger for $10, that's a banking transaction. You just loaned money that you wish to receive a a $10 return. You want that you gave $10, you want $10 back. If you start to charge interest on that, it becomes more of a professional banking transaction, but you're not a registered bank. What about if you go to a pawn shop and you say, "Hey, I'd like to give hey, get can you just hold this to the side? Don't sell it, but give me some money on it and if I don't pay you back in a period of time, you can sell it." Well, that's collateral for a loan, isn't it? Yep, payday loans. Uh, car title loans, but it gets bigger. A lot of hedge funds, um, SoftBank, a Japanese-based big, big, big fund, is not a bank, and it's got bank in the name. Why has it got bank in the name? Well, because it makes a lot of loans as well, and that's how it makes money. Uh, this is important. If you think about big celebrities that are on the rocks, and the one that's a really famous one, though it's dating me because a lot of the people listening may not even have been alive during this period, Michael Jackson's estate before he died, he hadn't made money in a long time and he was spending at a fabulously fast rate. Uh, he was spending money hand over fist. Where was he getting that money from? 
There's a lot of stories back then about him being broke. He was getting money from a series of different private investment firms and hedge funds who were using his music library, his, his portfolio of music that he owned, as collateral for loans that were extremely large loans. So why is that a danger? Why is, why is it a danger when a bunch of non-banks are making loans? Well, when you get into risky trading, so in the 1970s and 1980s, real estate uh, limited partnerships had a bad, bad issue, but that's kind of an unknown area. There's a really easy to recognize area right now. Cryptocurrency is often not purchased using only your own money. It's quite often purchased using borrowed money from a crypto exchange that expects to have that money back. And as much of that money that's out there that's borrowed, that's a shadow bank. If that money doesn't get returned, it has an effect on the U.S. dollar currency. Money disappearing from the system causes the dollar to go up in value. There's more, there, there's more demand for something that there's less of. So private banking could be a really easy way of pointing at all of the stable coins out there. Um, in the 1970s, another very common finger pointing at shadow banking was the money market world. There's a lot more regulation on it now than there used to be, but money markets are institutions that make loans. Often they're making loans to the federal government. They're buying treasuries or they're buying corporate bonds, but that's a loan to a corporation or a loan to the government, and they're using your money to do it with. They're paying interest. So regulations on that proceeded. The stuff that's happening in the crypto market is likely going to get regulated as well, especially if it's trying to peg to a dollar. There's, uh, you mentioned the money markets. There was a little scare in the money markets a while back. And as a result, the regulations on money markets clamped down pretty hard. So, uh, which is one of the reasons, by the way, you get such low returns in money market funds today compared to what you got in the past is the fact that they are required to keep reserves. They're required to do it. The SEC watches them pretty carefully. Money market funds, as they are in banks, are insured and regulated and heavily and and it's a whole different animal than the money market mutual fund. But the money market mutual fund is pretty heavily regulated right now. And while there is no insurance on a money market mutual fund, what we saw in the past is a couple of times when uh, money market mutual funds got kind of on shaky grounds. The Treasury actually stepped in and rescued them. Now, that's that's not to imply that they'll do it again. We don't know if they'll do it again or not. You want to know one of the, the biggest shadow banking, maybe not the biggest, it used to be the biggest, but one of the biggest shadow banking industries in the United States is the insurance companies. Yeah. If you have a 401k and you have a stable value fund. That's what most people you, think of as cash in their 401k. Right. So you've got a stable value fund. And if you read the fine print on the stable value fund, it says that if you said, I want my money back, I want to liquidate here, you may have to wait six months. Um because what you've got in there is guaranteed insurance contracts. Now, guaranteed just means they're guaranteed by the one that's giving the, yeah, they're giving guaranteed. the loan. I guarantee I'll they're, pay this back, but it's the same as signing a loan document. So when you loan money to an insurance company through a GIC, or you loan money to an insurance company by putting a lot of money in a, in a fixed annuity of some kind, that is also a shadow bank. Are they regulated? Yes, they're regulated by whatever state where they're domiciled. But that regulation is considerably less 
uh, onerous and extensive than is done at the federal level for regular money market funds. So what happens or even is banks. Banks are far, far higher regulated. If, if yeah, banks are farther. If you look at the interest rates, when you loan your money to somebody, which you do anytime you buy a bond, if you look at the interest rates on them, the higher the interest rate you're getting on that deposit, the there's a pretty strong rule here. The lower the regulatory oversight on that industry or that in that particular entity. And if you're getting an above market interest rate on a fixed um, loan to an insurance company or to anywhere else, you are assuming a greater level of risk. And that's the shadow banking industry. And, and I can lay this out. The shadow banking industry is getting money from pretty traditional sources, Wall Street, um, pension funds, I mean, some of these, the interest rates are out of this world high. So there are pension funds in, in Texas, based in Texas, that are funding payday loans and uh, car title loans at small corporations, lots of them all over Texas, where you go in and you get like a 47% interest rate over a two-month period. Um, what you just said about the higher the interest rate, the less... Uh, well regulated. Well, these these loans come right to the edge of regulation, are barely regulated. They basically you're just signed where you're going to give your firstborn child to someone because you don't have enough money to pay your credit card this month. It's bad, um, and there's big money going into it because it provides big money. That's just that's the that's so. What's the danger in shadow banking? Now we've established that it's out there. What's the danger of it? Just like. Um, the regulation has a relationship with the interest rate, so does the risk. And if we are in a place where there's lots and lots of low interest rate, and then you have the choice to go to a really high interest rate, and people don't know the difference, they just say, oh, this is paying more, I'll go to that. That comes with risk. Why is it that, I mean, you just go back to if you're getting a loan, and you have a choice between three places, will you go with the one that's going to charge you the lowest rate or the highest rate? Well, you want to go to the lowest rate if you're the one getting a loan. You don't say, no, I want a higher interest rate on my mortgage. I, I want to make a higher payment every month, even though I'm making the same principal payment. No, you don't say that. Neither do corporations. Nobody goes out there and says, I want the most expensive loan possible. So why do they take an expensive loan? Because it's the only one available because they're higher risk. If your credit score is really low, you're not going to get a high interest or, or low interest rate mortgage. You're going to, if you get a mortgage at all. So the same thing is out there when we're looking at shadow banks. If you're out there and you can't get a normal loan because nobody in a highly regulated area is going to charge as low as they're supposed to charge and take the risk that you are, you've got to go somewhere else. You got to go to a pawn shop or a payday loan place. That's why the interest rates are so high. It's also why, you know, when people say I'm going to do an owner financed mortgage, the interest rate tends to be a lot higher than going to a bank because most people that take an owner financed loan can't get a loan from a normal bank. So the interest rate will be higher. It's, we've got some other stuff to talk about the world of trade happening, but it's really that the lower the price, the more likely is the people are going to go to it. Let's talk about recession a moment. There's a lot of fear that, as a matter of fact, the, the declines in the market, the people who are selling, 
uh, when surveyed so far, have suggested that they are concerned that we're going to have a recession, that the Federal Reserve is going to raise interest rates and too much and too soon, and it will drive us into a recession, and companies will start losing money, and therefore they're selling their stocks. Um, Mark Zandi at uh, uh, has has got some very good. And by the way, Mark Zandi is is pretty famous. He's at um, Economy dot com, uh, Moody's, and he is pretty famous because he has done a very good job of forecasting economic downturns for the last forty years or so with eerie accuracy. He was one of the few people that forecast the 2008-2009 downturn accurately um, and pretty much has a handle on what went on and why it went on and continues to do so. He says, yeah, being worried about a recession recession when the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates makes sense. However, um, he's looked at the situation very, very carefully and concluded that the chances of us having anything other than an extremely mild recession are vanishingly low. And he has some, I think, some pretty good reasons for that. Um, the One of the big things is this is an externally caused situation we're in. It's a combination of uh, what happened in, in Asia, what happened uh, economically as we've switched from one, from buying lots of stuff, goods, to stopping buying goods and starting to buy services. These are whiplash effects that are going on in the United States economy, and it's causing part of the problem. The big one right now, though, is the Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine, and that's driven the price of oil up. Those are the reasons we're having inflation. The Federal Reserve is raising rates, but the point, this is an important point, the Federal Reserve rates are still below neutral, meaning they're still providing some stimulus to the economy, and they're gradually raising those rates. Well, that would be... They've discussed maybe raising them a little above neutral to slow the economy down. But here's the point. Household debt service. And remember, in the United States, our GDP is driven primarily by consumers. And when consumers have more money to spend, the economy does well. When they have less money to spend, the economy does less well in the United States. It's it's a bottom line factual thing. For the past 40 years, the debt service of the average household has run around 11 to 12%. In other words, of the take-home available spending money that a household has, they're spending between 11 and 12% paying on debts they have already incurred. Currently, that is down to about 9.2%. Why is it so low? Well, during the uh, pandemic, people paid off a lot of credit card debt. They paid off a lot of debts in general. And this is a big one. A lot of people have mortgages and a lot of people, re- everybody that had a brain, I think, uh, refinanced their mortgage to some absurdly low interest rate and their house payment went down. Yay. And that means they have more money to spend. And when people have more money to spend, the economy does better. Add to that the fact that we have, we're going into this uh, interest rate rise with record savings levels in the United States. I mean, all-time record since we've been keeping records on these things, both in terms of dollars, which obviously can be misleading, but also in terms of income. In other words, if you look at the percentage of people's income that they have socked away, it's just amazing. It's wonderful. Now, there's always the danger 
and Japan certainly has encountered that danger in the past, that people will sock away a lot of money, interest rates will go up, and they'll just keep socking away money, and they'll stop spending the money. And when they stop spending the money, we go into recession. This happens. Uh, that's something, if you want to be afraid of something, you can be afraid of. Um, but here's the point. There is every survey that's out there and every retailer that is contacted uh, who sells long-term durable goods. Now, what's a long-term durable good? A long-term durable good, the primary one I can think of is an automobile or a pickup truck, um, are saying they have a lot more demand than they have supply. How do, how do we know? They're, okay, they're saying that. How do we know it's true? The inventories on car lots have not increased. The orders for cars have. So people are willing to wait for months to get an automobile. And there's a lot of people who haven't bought automobiles who are looking, who said, I would love to buy an automobile, but I want some immediate gratification, so I'm not going to buy right now. So once the chip shortage resolves itself, and it will, um, then we're going to find ourselves in the position where there's a tremendous demand in the economy and people will have money to back up that demand. Uh, one of the things, and we mentioned this in the newsletter that's important to be aware of, is we have um, had a lot of people being hired in the United States. Employment remains, unemployment remains at 3.6%, um, which Oddly enough, I have read as an indication we're going to have a recession. Um, we added 390,000 new employees in May in the United States. That's the first estimate that came out of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. I'd love to work there. You just so want to be a what, bureaucrat. Yeah, I'd love to be a bureaucrat. Either the Bureau of Economic Analysis sounds even more fun. A bunch of analytical, a bunch of anal people in sitting around in rooms with green eye shades. Wow, that'd be cool. Anyway, so what we've got is a tremendous amount. Uh, manufacturing is up. Uh, spending is up. Uh, the PMI, the, the Purchasing Manager Index, uh, in both services and goods, are still sitting way above 50, which indicates growth coming down the road. All of these indicators tell us we're probably not going to have a recession in the near future. But I can forecast something we will have in the near future. You want me to do that? Sure. Yeah, I want to hear it. In about a minute and 30 seconds, the news is going to play. Whoa. I'm going to test you for your accuracy on this later. I'm going to replay this recording and see if you were correct. And uh, that will mark the end of our first hour of the Personal Wealth Coach on today, which is June 4th. And the Personal Wealth Coach, as we said at the beginning, is not just a radio program. We're also uh, an SEC registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. We do business all over the country. And we advise people on investments, we advise people on finances, and we manage investment portfolios for people. And if you would like to contact us during the weekend, we have voicemail, but during the week, we have live people that answer the phone, not a phone tree. And you can contact us at 254-947-1111 or 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. There you're going to find our newsletters going back. You can sign up to receive our newsletter or just read it there. You can listen to our radio programs going back if you didn't get your dose of insanity from listening to us right now. You can also go to any place where podcasts are offered and you search for TPWC and we'll be there. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.